So uh, <clears throat> I, I started something that is unique, I think, I, in, in that I've never heard anybody talk about some of the stuff that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Now, again, uh, just to let people know that may not know, I actually have three earned college degrees. I have a degree in theology, a degree in psychology, and a master's in clinical mental health counseling. And so when I'm coming at things, I can't look at something theologically without thinking about it psychologically. And typically I can't think, look at something psychologically without thinking about it in terms of our, you know, the existential, our relationship to God and all that kind of stuff. And so I've been doing a series that I've been calling God's Shadow Side. <laughs> and it's, it's caused quite a stir, at least outside of the walls, because, you know, it goes up on the Internet, whatever. Um, and so here's the concept. Carl Jung is famous uh, psychologist who developed this model of personality, and it's very, I think, accurate. And he, dev- he talks about the shadow side and how as we are growing and developing and engaging with people and learning how to make our way in this world, we develop a social self. We develop a, an image or a persona that we project that allows us, hopefully, to navigate the social part of our life. But invariably, we have to shave off parts of ourselves that doesn't fit in. <laughs> or there are things about us that we don't like or things about us that we wrestle with and struggle with. And so all this stuff can kind of get pushed to the background and denied, and it becomes part of this shadow self that then takes on oftentimes a psychological mechanism called projection. Everybody just say with me, projection. So projection is basically this. Whatever you deny about yourself, whatever you won't admit to yourself that is going on about yourself, you will see in other people and you will judge. Jesus talks about this because he says, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own eye. Right after he says, judge not lest you be judged, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and miss the plank in your own eye? Now here's the question. If you have a plank in your eye when you're looking at your brother, what are you seeing? You're seeing them through the plank. So the very thing you're judging is the thing that's in you that's part of your shadow that you disown. So I'm talking about God's shadow side. Now, God doesn't have a shadow in the sense that we do, but the Bible does. And so here's what we do in churches. Uh, and we're going to talk today about how does the Bible work? What is the Bible and how does the Bible work? But, but here's kind of what we've done. Really, if we're honest, if we're really, really honest and we look at it, the church presents a persona of God or puts forth a social self about all the good things and the merciful things and the loving things. And those are the things that we sing about, right? When we're singing in worship and the presence of God comes in and we feel so connected, we're talking about all those good things, right? And yet, for people who say, we believe the Bible to be completely true and authoritative and totally inerrant, in everything, including history, science, whatever, we believe it from Genesis to Revelation, from the introduction to the maps, the table of contents to the maps, whatever, all that bravado that we put out there, right? But we don't preach some of this stuff that maybe is a little bit the darker side of things. 
So what I've been trying to do is shine light on the darker side <laughs> and hopefully help us make sense of it. And so today what I'd like to do is help us make sense of Scripture and sense of the Bible and what is the Bible. So I'm going to make some statements. Uh, I should make those later. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Because if I make them now, you're going to get offended right off the bat and not hear anything of the rest of what i got to say. So let's look at a, at a couple stories, uh, familiar stories. This one may not be familiar to you. But again, I, I want you to just think about this from the level of your own personal sense of justice and morality, even that or maybe even especially that which has been shaped by your own Christian ethic or by the teachings of Jesus Christ. All right. I want you to think about it through the through that lens as we read the story. It comes from Second Samuel, chapter 24, the first four verses. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Notice it starts with again. <laughs> and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, who moves David to do this in this story? Who moves David to, to number them? Right? Okay. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, I mean, how many of you would like a move of God? Let me just stop right there, right? This is God moving in, in the Old Testament. Just like in the book of Acts. This is, okay, let's keep reading. Sorry. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of the Lord the king see it. But why does the Lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped. Uh, I don't want to keep reading all that. For the sake of time, come to verse 9, we drop down, it says, Then Joab gave the sum, the number of the people, to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men. Notice the number, 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. <laughs> so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But wait a minute, it was the Lord that moved him. I've sinned greatly in what I've done. I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Now, I'm pretty sure if famine came in the land, David would be the last one to starve. Just saying. Or shall you flee three months from before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? 
Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord set a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba. Watch this. 70,000 men of the people died. David didn't get sick. David didn't die. 70,000, that's almost, almost, that's about three-quarters of the population of Pueblo. Just to give you some perspective. Almost everybody that attends a Bronco game at Mile High Stadium, on uh, a whole stadium full of people. Now remember, it's just the men, so that means that there were that many widows and orphans left in Israel. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of, who knows how you pronounce that? Verse 17, (laughs) and David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and he said, surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Well, no kidding. (laughs) Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of this place, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of the Lord, went up and he does this sacrifice. And when he does this sacrifice, then the plague is halted. Now think about that story. God moves David to count. (laughs) Then David says, I've sinned and that I've done this thing. And God doesn't punish David directly. He punishes David by just sending a plague. Germ warfare, frankly, that in one day wipes out 70,000 people, 70,000 men, and leaves 70,000 families, widows and orphans, theoretically at least. I'd say that's a little shadowy. I don't know about you. So here's some elements of the story. Just to make sure we got it. God, in his anger against Israel, incites David to take a census. David is conscience stricken that he's sinned against the Lord, even though the Lord is the one who inspired him to do it. I'm not twisting the story. I'm just bringing out what's there. Then David says this. God gives him a choice. Well, let's see. We can do uh, three years of uh, famine. Starve you out for three years. We can do three months of, you know, you running from your enemies, war. So famine, war, or disease. You pick. And David says, how merciful is God? (laughs) Okay, let's put this in a modern day context. Alright? I know this, it bothers people when we talk about this, but we have to wrestle with these things because they're out there. We just don't know it. It's part of the shadow side. You get it? Because we're... Alright. You took a census, or take a census every 10 years. So all of a sudden, you and your family are stricken with disease. And you're praying for God for healing. And God says, I'm not going to heal you. And you say to God, why aren't you going to heal me? You say, because the government took a census. Getting awful quiet in this Methodist church. 
But that's merciful. And then God requires a sacrifice in order to stop the plague. Now let me give you a little bit of the background of the story. This story is being written to tell the story of David's rise to power and the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. In other words, it's written when Israel is on the rise as a nation. Now notice the numbers. Israel had 800,000 men. Judah had 500,000. Now we're going to look at Census 2.0. You ready for this? Come with me to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 21. You ready? Same story told in a different book. You ready? Listen to the differences. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does the Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. And then the, the story is basically the same after that. But here's some key elements that are different. Satan incites David in this story, not God. God punishes Israel instead of David. The census numbers are completely different. Now, gang, this this is a real problem if we want to say the Bible is completely without error in everything that it says. Or that it doesn't, quote-unquote, contradict itself. So so which is it? And I know there are people that can come up with you know ways to make it all work. Well, God did it, but He used Satan and, and whatever. But which is it? Is it God moving David because He's angry against Israel? God starts out angry at Israel and says, I'm going to move David to do this so I can punish Israel. Why? Why not just punish them? Or was it Satan who moved David and then God got displeased that David actually did it? You you see the difference? God's displeased at the beginning, so moves David. In the second account, David does it and God gets displeased. See the differences? And then the numbering... The numbers is also different. But here's the thing. This story is being written or retold at a completely different time in Israel's history. A completely different time. This story is being told by Ezra after Israel comes out of Babylonian captivity. So one's being told when Israel is coming to arise in power, and the others being told after really King David's line is cut off, the temple is destroyed, and they've been in Babylonian captivity. 
So they're being written, honestly, from a different worldview in some regards. Because Judaism really did incubate a bit in Babylon and pick up some ideas that were foreign to the scriptures that were written before. That's okay. (laughs) But it's also being written with a little bit different agenda. One's being written with a kingdom that they're trying to maintain and establish. The other is being written to encourage a people as they're rebuilding. And so there's some slight differences there. And I don't want to go into all of that. I just want to show you that some of these stories, when you think about them and you look at them, you're like, ugh. Like, is this really the God that we believe in? And if it is, where is that today, really? You know what I'm saying? But also what I want you to see is that really, see, here, here's our problem. And here's the point that I'm going to make, that I was going to make at the beginning. See, I always thought, because, you know, I, I, I came to the Lord very young, the beginning of my life, and I was looking for a map. I was looking for an instruction manual. Because <laughs> I figured out early on, I wasn't smart enough to do this thing called life on my own without messing it up, right? So I walk into church and they tell me, this is the word of God. If God said it, I believe it, that settles it. This is your direction for life. This is your map for life. Anything you need to know about life is in this book. Yeah? This is God's love letter. But even though there are lots of it that reads more like God's journal as he's working through his emotional issues. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Because it's got those darker parts in it. There's lots of it that doesn't read like a love letter. And so... And so then, so then you start going as, as a young adult or whatever, you start taking science classes, you start looking at different things, you start exposing yourself to more information and learning, and then it's like, wait a minute, there's, there's very, very wide gap between some of the things that are written in the scriptures and some of the things that scientists are saying. There's, there's problems archaeologically with many of the stories in the Bible. There's problems in the fact that, 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 that Israel's history books are not the only ancient histories that we have access to. There are other ancient histories that, that come out of the Chaldees, that come out of Egypt, that come out of Babylon, and, and they can compare the records and they don't line up. There's no archaeological evidence to support some of it. There is archaeological and historical evidence to support other parts of it. So how do we know? And so what I've come to the conclusion of, and this is where I want to get to the point of rescuing the Bible from fundamentalists, the problem really isn't with the Bible, and the problem certainly isn't with God. The problem is with us and the way we approach the Bible and the assumptions and presuppositions that we bring when we approach the Bible because we try to make it into something that it was never intended to be. The Bible is not, and I'm sorry, I will keep saying this. Listen to me, listen to me before I say this. Please, 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 please hear my heart. I don't have an axe to grind here. I have studied this book literally, and Julie will tell you, every day of my life, For about the last 30 years. Every single day of my life. There were times I was studying it on Christmas because somebody got me a book that I was interested in and I'd open it up on Christmas. I mean, every 
day. And I love it and I enjoy it. And I got to tell you, I enjoy and love the Bible more now than I ever have. So I'm going to bring you to my personal wrestling and my personal conclusions that I've come to. And you're free to accept them, think about them, chuck them, embrace them, run out of here and curse me as a heretic, whatever. I don't care. But just know there are darker parts, there are shadow sides to the Bible or shadow sides to God, one way or the other, that are presented in this book. And so what I'd like to suggest to you is it is in no way a manual for life. That it is in no way an encyclopedia where you can just wonder about, huh, I wonder what some topic is and I can just look it up and oh, there, there, that's what that is. It certainly is not a scientific book. I mean, I hate to tell you this, but, you know, Genesis 1, <laughs> and, and Bell has a book back there that will show you all kinds of wonderful mystical truths about the first day of creation in Genesis 1. And, and, but, but really, the writer is not sitting there asking modern scientific questions and trying to answer them. And the problem is, is that we impose our questions upon the text and then force it to try to fit the answers that we think we need in order to prop up our faith. And that's the problem. And so the reality is we miss the richness and the power and the life that's in the text. I believe what Paul said, that all Scripture is inspired by God, that it is breathed by God, and that it is profitable for us to make us wise, and it's profitable for us to help us grow and develop and mature spiritually. But I refuse to bow down to the book like it's an idol and serve the book rather than discovering and exploring the mystery of God who cannot be contained in this. My God, what, what, what knowledge in what world can be contained in something this big? When I worked for the insurance company, I worked for a health insurance company, and this was long before the Unaffordable Care Act. Well, I don't know about you, but my insurance became very unaffordable. Went up three or four times. Uh, wait a minute, I thought this was supposed to be the Affordable Care Act. What happened? Sorry, not trying to make a political statement. Just... I worked for an insurance company. I'm going to tell you the insurance policies was a, a catalog this big. Go to AutoZone and try to find the part that goes into your thing. That's that, uh, and we're talking about the infinite and the ineffable. Houston, we have a problem. The truth of the matter is the Bible is a collection of stories. It's a collection of books. It's a collection of stories. And it wasn't written by one author. And it wasn't transcribed on little Fred Flintstone tablets. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, let's check every Yod and Vav. And okay, here we go. That's not how it went. And whether you like it or not, it is a human book. I love how Peter N. says it. He says, God lets his kids tell the story. And you know what? Why are we still here? Maybe the human project is so much bigger than you could ever imagine. And maybe God has been developing revelation down through the ages. And maybe God never did some of the things that were in the Bible. And boy, if you suggest that, oh my God, he's saying the Bible isn't true. (laughs) I'm saying maybe we miss out on what's really going on. Because ancient people, frankly, 
Here's the thing, gang, and I'm very convicted about this, and I know this is very, you know, different than where I've been at different times in my life, and I know this is the most controversial thing that people are having to wrestle with, and part of the reason that some of the people have chosen to, you know, they're just not at this place, and it's okay, and we love them, and God bless them, and they've just chosen not to return, and whatever, it's fine. Right? It's fine. But here's the thing. God exists in this place. The best way I know how to describe it is the eternal now. Right? He's an eternal reality. Paul was preaching Christ in you, the hope of glory. He was hoping that that would be what you would discover. And in first, or I'm sorry, Colossians, he calls that the word of God. <laughs> Trying to connect you to something in the present moment that's meaningful for your spiritual awakening and growth and progress and the expansion of your consciousness. That history cannot do that. History cannot do that. And the Christian church for 2000, well, for at least 1500 years, maybe, maybe 1600 years, has locked everything into the historical event of what we say happened in the person of Jesus. And we made that the main thing rather than the present reality of who God is and the power of the story to shape your life. To speak to your life, to help you and expand you. See, that's the point of the book. The point of the book is not, listen, it is a modern problem that we need to have embedded reporters. Or witnesses on stand who swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so that you can be convicted on eyewitness testimony. These are all modern problems. The power of the story isn't, wow, was this historically accurate? The power of the story was to impact you at the level of your consciousness and say, see, I can see myself. I, Cain and Abel is the classic example for me. I can read the story of Cain and Abel, and it doesn't matter one iota whether they were real historical people and who was Cain's wife. It doesn't matter. They're archetypes, if you will, of the human situation and the human problem. And if it was historically true, great, wonderful, perfect, even better for Jerry Falwell and Liberty University and whatever. You get it? But if it wasn't historically true, it still has the power to make me look inside my own life and look inside my own heart and see how the story of Cain and Abel is being played out in my life today. And that's the inspiration. And that's the power. And that's what's profitable. But see, because we've made Christianity historical, and we said the main thing, the main thing is not that you experience God. The main thing is not that you connect with the Christ in you. The main thing is not that you go through life and you grow and you develop your soul and you learn the lessons that you were supposed to learn and you learn to trust God and you learn to love yourself and you learn to love God and your neighbor. That hasn't become the important thing. The important thing has become that you get the historical information correct about His death, burial, and resurrection and maybe a few of his teachings. Oh yeah, and we've got this book now that we can use to bind people and we can justify genocide and we can justify violence and we can justify oppression of anybody that's not like us because after all, God did it in the Bible. And if you don't believe that's true, then you don't understand that you need to go read about the Crusades. You need to go read about the Inquisition. And you need to read some of the things that they said. If God's going to torment the heathen forever in hell, going to keep them alive so that He can keep torturing them. I said this Wednesday night, but I want you to think about this. You realize that there are serial killers. Some of, some of the sickest, like most twisted, warped minds... 
where just killing someone isn't enough. They have to torture them in order to get their full kicks. And so if they're really diabolical, they figure out ways to keep them from passing out from the pain. They figure out ways to take them to the point of death with pain and revive them and bring them back and do it again. What do you think about that? I mean, those those are horrific ideas. And yet the Christian church in the West, the Latin West, has said, this is the God that we serve. He's so justified. He's so righteous. He's so holy that somehow you just didn't get your historical facts straight. Somehow you didn't believe a message that only that, that, that only 500 witnesses were. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, there's 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And then the apostles passed that down. And then instead of connecting people to life and the reality of Christ, we say, listen, if you don't believe that historical event, then God is not satisfied to even get rid of you. God wants like a warped, twisted, eternal serial killer keep reviving you and keep you alive so he can keep torturing you throughout all eternity. And then we wonder and we say, that's good news. Oh, but the Gospels, but the New Testament's different, right? Let's just look at two stories. Let's just look at two stories. What are the two most important holidays in Christian tradition? Christmas and Easter, right? We know this, right? There are no two stories that are more contradictory or harder to reconcile within the New Testament than the Christmas story and Easter story. So let me help you out. Here's our problem. Most of us don't sit down and do a comparative analysis of the birth of Jesus. And there's only two of the four gospel writers that talk about it. Matthew and Luke. Because we have this synthesis called the annual Christmas program. Where we have Jesus and we have the manger. My mom has all these nativity sets in the house. And who's there? Jesus. Mary, Joseph, who else? Shepherds, wise men, animals, and a star, right? Okay, so let's just, let's just follow this, alright? Now, now, and I don't even want to get into that. I could, but I'm not gonna. I'm looking at my notes, talking to myself, not to you, because I think out loud. Now, in the birth of Jesus in Matthew, this is generally how it goes. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The Magi come, and Herod sends the Magi to Bethlehem to see Jesus, who find him in a house in Bethlehem. Then, let's just, let's just look at this, so you can see it for yourself. Hopefully I can do this, because I don't have it totally in my notes. Look at verse 19 of, or listen to verse 19 of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. Now when Herod... Oh, nope, 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 sorry. Verse 10. So this is the Magi. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. 
Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Everybody say Egypt. And stay there until I bring word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And when Herod... I'm sorry. So Herod goes and, you know, he murders all the babies. And then in verse 19 it says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when they heard that this guy was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned to the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled. Got it? So what happens? We go to Bethlehem, take the census, whatever. She has the child. The wise men come, they worship. Then when they leave, they're like, don't go back and tell Herod where he is. And then what happens? Joseph has a dream. Herod's going to try to seek the child's life. And what, is, what do they do? They depart immediately and go where? Egypt. Okay, thank you. No mention of shepherds. Right? Now Luke, Luke tells the story differently. Luke has Jesus being born in a manger. Luke has no mention at all of Herod seeking the child's life. Instead, it tells it this way. All right, here's the second half of the program. In this version, now we have the angels and the shepherds and all that. You got it? Verse 15, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go up to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled, and all those things which were told them by the shepherds. And Mary kept all these things in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now listen to this. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And now when the days of her purification, because remember after you had a baby, you had to wait before you could go into the temple. When the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two pigeons. So which did they do? Did they avoid Herod and go immediately to Egypt? Or did they follow the law and go to Jerusalem and have the child circumcised and offer the sacrifice according to the law? And then it says they immediately, I quit reading, but you can find it for yourself. It says they immediately went and settled in Nazareth. Which is it? 
<laughs> okay, what's the second big holiday? Easter. Now, you think Christmas is difficult? The resurrection is talked about by all four of the authors. Let me just, we don't have time to go into it, but if you can do some study on your own. In Matthew, here's the resurrection account. In Matthew's gospel, the two Marys go to look at the tomb and there is an earthquake and one angel sitting on the stone at the entrance of the tomb tells them, go tell the other disciples that Christ is risen. Got it in your mind? Two Marys go, earthquake, one angel. Mark tells it this way. The two Marys and Salome go to the tomb. There is no earthquake. They actually go into the tomb and they see only one angel on the right side. Luke's gospel, the women go into the tomb finding it empty and they see two angels that suddenly stood beside them. The disciples don't believe them and Peter runs into the tomb. Got it? In all the synoptics, the angels, whether it's one angel or two angels, say, Jesus is not here. They say that with me. They tell the women, Jesus is not here, but has gone into Galilee, right? Except when you get to John's account. (laughs) In John's account, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and runs back to tell Peter, who isn't there, and presumably John, who isn't there, that the body is gone. So in one account, Peter discovers it. In another account, Peter's not there. Mary discovers it, and she runs back to tell the disciples. Two others run off while Mary stays behind weeping, and two angels appear, one sitting at the head and the other sitting at the foot of Jesus, and Mary sees Jesus as the gardener. So which is it? The angel said, Jesus isn't here, he's gone to Galilee? Or Jesus is there as the gardener and the angels just didn't know. He forgot to let him in on it or something. They, they didn't get it. They didn't see it on Twitter. They didn't get the update. Which is it? You see the inconsistencies? Now you would think if the, if the Bible was going to get anything right, surely, 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 the two foundational holidays of our faith would jive. But the the reality is that they don't. And it was funny, the first time I did this, I did this on a Wednesday night, and I cracked up because really scholars and church fathers and with the Gospels have been trying to harmonize them for years, and they can't for centuries. So people have thought about this and talked about this for centuries. And I cracked up the first Wednesday night, but this is this is what happens to us. The first time I presented this, I laid it all out because I had more time. We looked at all the scriptures, the comparisons, and I had a few people that kept me till 11 o'clock trying to figure out how, well, Mary, maybe Mary didn't go there because she was ashamed because everybody thought she was a hoe because she was, she was pregnant before she got... I mean, seriously, that's, and and I'm just like, you know what, you are not going to figure this out when you just got it presented to you when people have wrestled with this for centuries. But that's our need to make the Bible conform to what we think it's supposed to be rather than what it is. And so the truth is, is that each one of the Gospels are being written to present Jesus as a story that, that impacts the community in the here and now, in a way that can connect them 
to God. Because again, they're not worried about, you know, where's the, where's the Fox News reporter that can tell us exactly how it happened on the day that Jesus raised from the dead? Or exactly how his birth took place. If you look at Matthew's Gospel, you understand that Matthew's Gospel is written during a time period when the situation between Christians and Jews is still, because it got really hostile both ways. But it's being written during a time uh, that there's still um, harmony. You, 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 You catch what I'm saying? And so you'll find that, that Matthew generally uh, blames the Romans more for the crucifixion of Jesus. But here's the thing. He, they're, they're presenting Jesus. There was a prophecy in Deuteronomy where Moses said, There shall come a prophet like unto me, and him you shall hear in all things that he says. And so what the, what Ma, what the writer of Matthew is trying to do is he's trying to present Christ as the prophet who is like unto Moses. So all he does is he retells the story of Moses about Jesus. So of course there was a murder of babies. And of course Moses, Jesus, sorry, had to go down into Egypt. And of course there's an exodus from Egypt. And of course there's 40 days trial in the wilderness, just like there's 40 days trial or 40 years trial for Israel. And then he comes back and what does he do? He gets on the mountain and tells the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because he's bringing the, 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 the law, the Torah. And if you watch it, it's the retelling of who Christ is as Moses, to a community who's looking for the prophet like unto Moses. Now, you may not like that. You may call that spin. You may call that whatever. It's just the way the ancient people did it. I'm sorry. It is what it is. Remember, God lets his kids tell the story. And we have shadows. (laughs) And we have questions. And we have things that we wrestle with. And sometimes our stuff gets projected onto God and we blame God when really it's our own shadow Because remember what Carl Jung said, if you disown it, you'll project it. And the biggest bearer of our shadow is God himself. And that really is a huge part of the gospel message. For we esteemed him stricken of God and afflicted. But it was our sins and our burdens that he carried. We despised him and we esteemed him not. He was like one from whom we hid our faces, Isaiah says. Why? Because the light is exposing our shadow and we can't handle it. And so we just project it onto him. And a big part of the atonement and a big part of the healing is the fact that God came in the flesh to bear that and then be lifted up so that you could come to the light. And that's the the power of it. You see it? Luke's being written to... to, uh, all of humanity. So Matthew goes back, Jesus' lineage through Abraham. Luke goes all the way back to Adam because he's like what God was doing. He wasn't just doing for Israel. He was doing for all of humanity. And Luke's emphasis is on the disenfranchised. Luke's emphasis is on those that have been disqualified from temple worship. Luke's focus is on the Gentiles. Those, Luke uses the term sinner more than any other of the gospel writers. It's only in Luke's gospel that it talks about the parable of the prodigal son. It's only in Luke's gospel that you see the parable, all the parables about the lost coin and the lost sheep and all that stuff. Because the main emphasis is that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. For Matthew, the main emphasis is this is this, this is the prophet that Moses declared. For Luke, the emphasis is 
You see it? So each writer is presenting a portrait or a story to give shape to the message in a way that's going to impact the life and the consciousness of the people who are reading it. And there's life in it. And it's okay. See, part of the reason that Christian faith has become so irrelevant in our culture is because we refuse to grow with the culture. We refuse to engage the culture. We're right. They're wrong. They're deceived by the devil. God's getting ready to wrap the whole thing up in nuclear fire anyway after he jerks everybody out of here. So who cares? As long as we got it right, historical information, then, you know, one of these days, brother, the heavens are going to open up. And I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. And dang it if I'm not still here dealing with my problems. Dang it if I'm not still here having to wrestle and engage. Dang it if I'm not sitting here and now you're messed up my Bible and now I really don't know what to think. Better get back to my notes. What happened to my notes? <laughs> I think what's important is that we don't get hung up on the details. We don't try to make the Bible our God in the sense that we're just going to let the Bible tell us what to do because it's the Word of God and it applies in every situation to every circumstance to every person. Someone asked me, what's the church's official policy on marriage? And it was a sincere question and I know where it was coming from because it was coming out of the, the homosexual issue and all of that stuff. And I just looked at him and I said, you know, we don't have an official policy on marriage. In fact, we don't have an official policy on much because here's what I've discovered. Life is complicated. And people are doing the very best they can with what they have. And every circumstance is different. And I'm sorry, I can tell you stories of women who stayed in abusive, very abusive relationships, who kept their children in very abusive relationships because the church's policy on marriage was we don't believe in divorce. And we believe wives should submit to their husbands in all things. Just like Sarah called Abraham Lord, let the wife be subject to the husband in all things, even if he beats you, even if he wants to take you to an orgy, even if you're, you're just being the good Christian wife that God told you to be. And if you think that stuff doesn't happen and doesn't come up in conversations behind closed doors with pastors who are more committed to the book than they're committed to loving and thinking rationally and and, and care about the person's story. So how in the world can we all come with different stories but have one set of guidelines that applies to every person in every situation? We can't. It's overly simplistic, it's lazy, and it's ignorant. And I'm sorry that I'm saying that, but it's absolutely true. And I'm sorry that there are people that have high certainty needs. I'm going to tell you something. You are on a spaceship. You are on a giant brown ball that's going thousands of miles through space without a driver, without a pilot. And no brakes. <laughs> and it's spinning. And you want security and safety. 
and certainty. Do, do, do you get it? Do you get it? Want to go higher? Sometimes to go higher, you've got to you got to allow the footing, the place that you've stood, to become shaken, to become unstable, to become a place that's uncomfortable, so that you're willing to leave where you've been. I'm going to tell you something. Three years ago, God, I had a visitation. It completely shook me up. It completely unhinged me. I didn't know up from down, north from south. I, there were times I didn't even know my own name or the size of my underwear. Sorry, I was trying to, I wasn't trying to put horrific mental images in your mind. I was just trying to lighten it up a little bit. And I had to be willing in all humility to come and bring every cherished belief, every anchor, everything I had, and go ahead and let it go through the fire, and go ahead and let it go through the light, and stop being afraid to ask the questions, because you see, we have had such a maniacal God, such a shadowy God. Here's where we allow the shadow of God to come out. We see those stories in the Old Testament, we say, see, this is what God's really like. This is what God's really like. And Jesus is just holding back His wrath. And the praying church is just holding back His wrath. But one day He's going to return to being like that. And when He returns to being like that, He's going to come and He's going to jerk out those who got the historical information right and prayed the prayer. And believed right about the rapture and made sure they believed in hell and believed in the inerrancy of scripture and, and it depends on which group you're with. Maybe, uh, they, they didn't dance, to, you know, they didn't go out to the bar dancing that night or whatever. Or they didn't go see some movie that had filth in it that they shouldn't have seen or who knows? Notice nobody ever says they weren't gossiping down at the coffee shop. No, nobody ever mentions that one. That's probably a lot more destructive than going to see the movie that had the F word in it. I'm sorry, but I'm just... Right? So God's going God's to take that group out and He's going to keep that. But everybody else is going to be abandoned. It feeds on people's fear of abandonment. Everybody else is going to be left behind. And then, man, get ready because what God's really like is going to come out in, in a valley that just flows with blood and, and pouring out the vials of His wrath. And all those people are really going to get it. And then guess what? Then they're really going to get it for eternity because God's so pissed. He's just going to keep them alive and just keep... And so now we've got this moment of time. We've got this moment of time where there's grace. We've got this moment of time where there's opportunity when the wrath of God is being held back. See, we do have a shadow side that we present to God that terrorizes people. Because I'm going to tell you something. As horrible as you might think it is, as much of a nightmare as you might think it is, to wake up, to just imagine this. You go to the grocery store, all of a sudden everything goes, you're going out to your car, all of a sudden everything goes black, and you wake up chained to a table to find that you have been taken captive by one of these destructive serial killers, and you think this is a horrible nightmare, and this is a situation that I want out of. How traumatic would that be? How psychologically devastating would that be? And how much fear and sheer terror would you have in your heart in that moment, I ask you? Because the reality is, is that's how we present God, only not a momentary thing where death can finally be a welcome friend, but an eternal thing where he keeps you awake and tortures you for all eternity. And we say, if you don't believe right, this is what waits for you. And so it's no wonder that we can't ever ask the questions that we need to be asking because it's not safe for us to ask questions and it's not safe for us to make mistakes because if I die tonight, I may not know where I'm going. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, I know for a fact, I used to do street evangelism. And, and everybody, you know, these guys come in and, oh, we went out on the streets and we won how many thousands of people got them to pray the prayer. I know for a fact that a large percentage of those people just want you to go away. And they are not direct enough to tell you, go away. They don't have enough ego fortitude to tell you to get lost. And so they pray the prayer to get you to shut up. And you put another notch in your evangelical belt. Okay, I'm sorry. I shouldn't tell it like it is, I guess. I'm trying to help us be okay. Be okay to ask questions. Be okay to engage. Be okay to engage the mystery of who God is. Be okay to engage the mystery of who you are. Be okay that you make mistakes. Be okay to try things. Be okay to open up your heart and your mind to someone who sees things different from you and whose experiences are different from yours without judging it through this lens, feeling like God validates your judgment and your experience and invalidates them. There are people who have more experience with Jesus who have never read a Bible. And there are people who can quote the Bible from cover to cover and have never had experience with Jesus. I love you. Let's stand up. Let's just, just open your heart. The reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word of the Lord is in your heart. <laughs> There's no way around it. You've got a shadow in there too. <laughs> that you have to, that you get to engage and wrestle with and ultimately bring balance and healing to your life. If you'll stop denying your shadow, you know, all those parts of yourself that you disown, that you can't admit to yourself. I'll give you a great one. One of the hardest people... How many believe that unforgiveness is like drinking poison expecting the other person to die? Bitterness, right? And and when you forgive, you're not you're not letting the person off the hook. You're not saying what they did is is okay. What you're doing is working through the emotions that you're having about the experience that happened to you so that you don't have to stay in bondage to pain. When you refuse to forgive, you give all the power to the perpetrator and you keep yourself a perpetual victim of that situation. We all know this, right? Yet the hardest people it is to get to forgive someone oftentimes are Bible-quoting Christians because they can't even admit to themselves that they haven't forgiven. And it just gets tucked away in the shadow. And so what I'm telling you is that, that it's okay to embrace all this stuff. It's okay to admit all this stuff to yourself. And really, it's okay. God's okay with it because actually God's the one that created the system this way to begin with. <laughs> and when you own your shadow, you're actually beginning to own part of your power. And it could be a wonderful time of self-discovery. When you can just say it's okay to admit where you are in the process. You don't have to deny or suppress or project anything. It's okay to admit where you are in the process. 
So, Heavenly Father, I thank you today. I pray, Lord, that anything I said that would cause offense or stumbling or wasn't of you, Lord, I pray that it would just somehow be muted and vanish away. But, Lord, that which is empowering and impactful and it causes us to expand and grow and develop, love you and love ourselves and love people more, Lord, I pray that that will just be sustained and eternally planted like seeds in our hearts. Lord, I bless your people and I give you thanks in the wonderful name of Jesus. And if you can agree with that, saints, please say amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.